Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Buckle up for an unfiltered dose of comedy. Full disclosure, I've had a lot of sex, but honestly, having sex with me is like buying a Prius. It's much quieter than you'd expect. Epics presents Unprotected Sets. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, my name is John Paul Kermy. I am a breathwork teacher. I'm really excited to be doing this new podcast with my good friend Feldy called Hang Up. That's right, I'm John Feldman. I'm in a band called Goldfinger. John Paul taught me breathwork, it changed my life. We're talking about solutions to problems today. Listen to Hang Ups on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lips LA. Hey guys, welcome to the show. It's Scott Lips, and I am coming to you live today from New York City at the Sonos Studio. So, pretty exciting to be here. This studio rocks, actually. It's my favorite speakers in the whole world. Um, this studio in particular is pretty awesome because they have like reel to reels in the studio and old cassette tapes. It's making me a bit nostalgic, which is cool. This week has been very fun in New York, and it makes me um, just remember how much I do miss New York quality people how nostalgic it is for me to be back here and just the uh the great overall feeling the energy in new york is unbelievable and on today's show we have mr nur khan an old friend of mine a great friend of mine part of my new york posse i guess you would say you've actually heard me speak about him on the show before nur is responsible for actually he's the purveyor of cool and uh new york nightlife for many 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 years in new york nur started the rose bar many years ago in New York, which for me was still the coolest spot to ever uh, go, uh, that I've ever been actually. It was this amazing amalgamation of um, sort of celebrities and musicians and politicians, and I've never been in a space like that ever before in my life. I don't think it's ever going to be recreated, the energy, the time period. He's got a new spot, Butterfly. He is an awesome guy and uh, one of my favorite people in New York, and part of the reason why New York is as cool as it is. So, we are being brought to you live, as I said, from the Sonos Studios today in Soho, New York, on Green Street. Make sure that you rate and review the show on iTunes. It's super helpful for us. And uh, tell a friend, tell two friends, tell five friends about the show. That's actually super helpful for the show to uh, have a ton of traction and go viral and everything. So make sure you tell a ton of friends about the show. Rate it, review it on iTunes. Super helpful. And uh, walking in in just a second, Mr. Nurcom. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Cool. So um, here he is, the one and only Mr. Nur Khan, my good friend. I actually called you the purveyor of cool of New York City nightlife. That's amazing. I've never heard that before. I made that up. Uh, aficionado. Um, or and, and Nur is a close friend, as I mentioned to you guys before he got here. But I will say, Nur, you know, what's amazing about you, and I, there's so many stories that we're going to get into. I actually even forgot before you walked in that you are the reason why I play drums with Courtney Love. <laughs> I, I don't know how I forgot I, that, I, and, and we're going to get into that for sure. Funny. I, yeah, I mean... That was your 10-year anniversary of it one was. management, I think, right? It was, it was, but actually you are, I would say, solely responsible for that uh, moment in, in my life and, and how it's 10 years later we're still sitting this here was, talking about yeah, it. Yeah, this was a Hero Ballroom. You were supposed to have your 10-year anniversary for your agency. Wait, and wait, save that story because okay. we've got to talk about uh, your whole history here. Okay, But, but right, for those of you who can't see <laughs> us, I will tell you that Nur has walked in looking like he always does. I, I, don't, I think I've seen you in shorts once <laughs> in my whole life. 
You've got uh, he's the king of cool. So I'm actually got, in shorts uh, every day. Well, I know when you're like doing your martial arts, but right now it could be like eleven o'clock at night because you got true. the rings, yes. you got the leather jacket, your signature. This is like the signature near look, which is great because it's eleven a.m. or ten thirty, whatever it is. So. Yeah. I love that. Um, but anyway, for those <clears> of you who don't know, Nur, I gave you an illustrious uh, intro before you got here. We're old, old friends. You're responsible for me playing Courtney's band. But you actually kind of, for me, have helped run and create the best part of New York City nightlife for many, many years. Without you, I would say I, I definitely experienced my best um, years going out and the energy and excitement of what New York nightlife was during the Rose Bar years. What were the years of Rose Bar? That was... Uh, 2006, well, I was there uh, until the hotel got sold. So it was 2006 to 2010. So those four years will never be recreated. I mean, you have an amazing thing now, and it's incredible, by the way. We'll speak about Butterfly New York. But for whatever reason, that point in time stays in my memory. 2006 to 2010 is the best years ever of New York nightlife. And I wasn't around during your wax mm-hmm. and sway, so we'll get into the whole <laughs> stuff. But your journey is a pretty interesting one. You actually have done everything from living with monks to uh, you started in finance, I believe. And what's interesting in the whole show, I think you know, is about and there is really about how you started your path, your journey into today at Butterfly and where you've been. So take us back to the finance years for a little bit, right? And how you lived with monks and all that stuff and like <laughs> your first foray into the nightlight world because we're great friends and so we never really talk about this. But um, it's an interesting story. I mean, I don't, I don't have any other friends that live with monks and started like New York City nightlife as we know it today. So that's funny. Um, well, if we want to get back to the finance, uh, I was actually commuting and working on Wall Street as uh, a trader, assistant trader when I started, and um, I found this amazing old decrepit movie theater. It must have been closed for like a hundred year, hundred years, but it was a really cool one with the mezzanines, you know, like the old Academy Theater. So oh, even, yeah, even before that, you grew up in Connecticut, yep, right? Yep. And you went to college in Connecticut. Uh, I went to University of Colorado. Cool. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I grew up. I went to high school in Connecticut. Born I here, in, born here in Manhattan, but grew up there. Grew up. Okay, so you go to college in Colorado, which I didn't even know, and I know you very well, which is strange that I don't know that. Man, I went out there to <laughs> ski, bro. <laughs> and then you somehow Playboy got Playboy finance. magazine voted at number one party school, and I got to ski four days a week. Amazing. So I was there, man. Why not? And then you moved back here. Yeah. And then you started in finance, and like, did you? You weren't wearing the leather jacket. You didn't have the. You didn't look like this. I was right? always wearing a leather jacket. Even in the, finance, you I was like the this? black sheep of. In Connecticut, for sure. A white bread town. And uh, yeah, I'm just pretty good when I was on Wall Street. So you you were like the rock and roll Wall Street guy. Very much so, yeah. Okay, so the rock and roll never left your system. Black sheep everywhere. Black sheep, I love it. And so at a certain point, you're on Wall Street and you realize this is not for you? Um, Look, it was an amazing, amazing experience. Uh, Not so much the part when I blew up in the World Trade Center the first time, but... And we were on the sixth floor, and we thought a plane flew into us back then. But um, what, year, what year was that? This was '93, uh, I think. Okay, so you're doing finance for a couple of years. You're working at the I World was on Trade the sixth Center. Sixth floor uh, of Lehman Brothers. And what happened? They, they drove that truck into the basement and, and tried to blow the oh, World Trade Center. Yeah. Went off crazy. downstairs first. Wow. And we still we thought a plane flew into the side of the building. It was like crazy man and, w- and what, walk me through what was going on in your head at that point were you just like did you literally sort of I remember mark? everything just falling over on the desk and I was like what the fuck just happened and um, luckily we were on the sixth floor so like you know a lot of our friends were on the top floor in Cantor Fitzgerald and, and I mean everyone they got down that time I, I don't think a lot of people got killed like 10 or something maybe but um, even that is crazy. All the lights were out. All the power was out. People were coming down looking just completely covered in black soot. And uh, it was scary as fuck, man. Wow. And, and so. it defi- when something like that happens, it kind of makes you reevaluate your life in a way. And was that sort of your epiphany to be like, I got to get out of this thing? Because, you know, as much as if people know you, your soul is rock and roll. No one loves music more than you do maybe me but okay. other than me and you we have that bond right where music is like our first passion and love so you were caught in this job like a lot of people are where you're like i'm doing this thing but finance is probably not your thing i mean if you were dressing like this back then if someone had a clue <laughs> that this was not your thing maybe yeah. there was a different path yeah. for you um i man i was in in like i said this very uh 
white bread type town. And uh, I actually, after school, I actually started a construction company and a, a painting company. I was an architecture major, so um, I had always painted when I was a kid. So that was actually before Wall Street. And uh, I had a girlfriend, and she wanted the, the white collar guy. So, you know. Seems to be I, not I very you. To Wall Street, yeah. yeah you know you. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. It was it was me. I mean, as soon as I got down there, I was I was hustling. I was knocking on the door every day to get the job, and uh, I was good when I was there. But um, did you do well on Wall Street? Did you make money? Yeah. I did okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I was young. I can't picture was, you being was, on Wall Street. It was, only, it was only six years. Okay. Um, so, what ages were you at that time when you were God, on Wall Street? I guess. Uh, was it like your early twenties? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then take me back to the time when you had this sort of epiphany to start, you know, to start the nightlife <coughs> stuff that you did. Because you were one of the guys that started, and when I kind of moved away from New York when I was younger, I had heard about Wax and Sway and all the places you started, but I don't really know the history behind them. It's funny. It started right around the corner here. I just coming down this cobblestone street. It was like... Um, we're on so Green I, Street and so It was on Mercer, actually. So uh, there was a lot of action on Mercer and, and Green Street. Well, there was about to be, actually. Um, I found this great space. It was, um, what was it? It was, I guess it was a clothing store. Um, 113 Mercer Street was where Wax was. That was my first bar in New York. And how'd you start and it? I um, mean, you don't just start a bar out of the blue, right? Did it you? Was, like, it was, it was empty. We had to build it from scratch. You know, no, no plumbing, no nothing in there. So, um. So you leave Wall Street. Do you get financing to do Wax? I was building Wax, uh, with my money and a friend of mine's and, we had to build it and wait till we got a liquor license. So there was a thing back then called the 500-foot rule, which didn't exist. So I actually built this whole space, designed it, was ready to go and get our liquor license. And then they created this new rule where if there are three bars within 500 feet, you have to go through hearings with the state liquor authority and, and the community. And then the community just went crazy on us. So they're like, no, I, I ended up... Luckily, I knew everybody in Soho then. So, yeah, like what was Soho like back then? Because this was was this the this was mid eighties. Right, this was, was no, this? this was like uh, ninety five. Okay, um, totally off the my mind. <laughs> um, so ninety five, what no, was you're Soho still playing like? in Black Cherry? Then. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I was out of Black Cherry by that point. But what was what was Soho like in ninety five? So this is <clears throat> the Mercer Hotel was just going up. It was part of the reason why I really liked that location. I'm like, mm. this is going to be really cool. And they got held up for. Um, Someone actually fell off, fell off a scaffolding, one of the builders there. So wow. the Mercer got held up for a year or so. Um, I and I ended up having to get decisions appealed for to get my license approved. So I actually ended up going through regular court. The, uh, had to go back to the Supreme Court. Finally, after like a year of trying to get this liquor license while I'm sitting on a built space, um, the appellate court overturned it. And um, we were good to go. Had you saved enough money at that point to start a bar? Because you really weren't yeah, working during yeah, that time, yeah, right? No. Well, the money was there once, you know, I knew I was going to leave Wall Street once I got that permit. So, yeah, and I had a couple of friends that put some money in it as well. But And what kind of money <coughs> do you have to raise back in 95 to start a it bar? It wasn't much. It like wasn't a couple much. hundred thousand? Max. Okay. Maximum, yeah. It's interesting, um, right? Because now I had friends. Friend, my friends were builders that came in, and I had friends that did the art, and, and I play a big part in all the building of, of my spaces. So. Yeah, you're really into the aesthetics of all your spaces, yeah. and even now at Butterfly, you have. Um, we'll talk about Butterfly in a minute, but Damien Hurst provided a lot of the artwork. Yep. I, I don't even know. You would tell me, but the artwork alone in Butterfly now has got to be worth a couple million. It's more than that, probably. Yeah. Probably three or four million. So no one robbed that place. Just that <laughs> you didn't hear us say that. But the artwork alone in Butterfly and the artwork at Rose Bar for many years was also like Damien Hurst and all extraordinary. All, yeah, 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 yeah. Great Hurst. stuff there. Uh, so, so were you involved in the? You were involved in the design uh, back in the day. Of I designed back. the whole thing. I mean, I designed all my places. Yeah. And so, at what point you do you open it up? And did anyone come? We opened the first it up. Night? It was actually. <clears throat> um. I was living with a friend of ours who you may or may not know. His name was Kelly Cole. and uh, He Mike does like the T-shirts Mike now in well, LA yeah, or something, yeah, the leather jackets or something. We were, we were all hanging out down in Soho back then. And, like, you know, Mike Williams, uh, used to be Donovan Leach's uh, Nancy Boy band back then. Oh, so right, it was, right, right. It was a fun little gang. Yeah. So Kelly and Michael Alton, those guys, had opened up Spy Bar while I was waiting on mine. And we were all living together, so I kind of, like, helped them open that, that up. And then 
wax opened, and then it just turned into back and forth every night, like spy wax, spy wax. But how do you go from being on Wall Street to attract that crowd? Because were you super social at that point? I mean, Very that's, social. Okay, so Very you had a ton of friends. Crowd. Yeah, we were all hanging out at like the B bar back then, and uh, you know, I was living like a double life to be honest. Okay. <laughs> you know, we had this crazy loft where it was like you know, headbangers ball in our loft every night. I would put on a suit to go to work in the morning. I'd leave Metallica in the living room and tell the guys <laughs> to lock the door up behind them and right. fucking crazy, crazy mornings, you know, yeah. So that club went on for how long? Uh, that went on for about three or so years because, you know, for that year that we got held up, I actually, my landlord was cool enough where she let us uh, pay double the rent the next year to make up for, you know, being behind. So I just... At that point, I was like, man, let's just get out from behind this. And I found Sway, uh, an old dive bar on Hudson and Greenwich. So had Wax, like, had Wax, because I just take me back for one second, had it made money or was it hard to make money in that business at that point in 95? It, was, it was not easy to make money because, you know, we took out, you know, remember there were the big clubs like Tunnel and USA. Right, and, right, right. Those were the big clubs I never went the there, but I heard, yeah. And the Club Kid thing. And mm -hmm. so they all had VIP rooms in them, but... The idea was let's just take the VIP room out of this whole shit show and create, you know, a 2,000 square foot space that's just totally private. And also the family. way that you curate all your spaces, it's about the music. So yep. you play the best music in the world. I mean, I'm not partial to it, but it is, or I am partial to it, but it is, you know, Zeppelin. To, we were talking the other day, you, you played this amazing um, Tina Turner, Whole Lot of Love, like <laughs> remake to like the cult, to just all your friends. Back then, it, I remember distinctly it was... Um, my buddy and who you know, Nellie Hooper, had just yeah. produced the soundtrack for Romeo and Juliet, mm. the, the old Leo DiCaprio, Claire Danes film. And every song that he chose for that soundtrack was like basically the soundtrack for Wax back then. Amazing. And it was like great Radiohead tunes, Shirley Manson, Garbage. Uh, I've, God, there's so many great songs. Well, you've always been the known for He had discovered like the Cardigans then. Nobody Amazing. really knew who Radiohead was then. <coughs> um, so... It was kind of cutting edge, but remixed. Right, right. Cool to, to, rock, make, like. to make it tailor-made for your space. But what was the door policy back then at Wax and oh, Sway? Man. I mean, how did it work? Did you just pick anyone off the street? Because obviously now, even now, you have a door policy, and you can't just get into one of your spaces. The Rose Bar was the hardest place ever to get into, but we'll talk about it in a moment. What uh, an amazing Wax curated was even crowd. harder was than, it? than Rose Bar. So how, yeah. do, how do you decide on that door policy? I don't remember who, because I wasn't even around during Wax and Sway. I was in L.A., but what was the policy? What did you? Who were your door guys, and what did you tell them to sort of curate that I amazing had audience? A, a Swedish girl named Pernilla, who was my first door girl, and... Um, Rob Santiago was there, who I, he's worked with me throughout the years. Um, and Linda Garcia, who ended up running the door at Sway, was one of the door people as well. And basically, no suits were allowed in there, right. period, even if they're cool suits. So you show wearing a suit, you're not getting no it. No way. Right, okay. No way. You have and to wear leather. And it was a 50-50 <laughs> ratio. If you didn't have a girl and you're two guys, you were not coming in. And someone just told me a story the other day about a couple of big super big celebs and uh i don't even remember it but they're like so-and-so stuck at the door i think it was steve west actually right <laughs> who was it was it i think it was Axel like or something? Clooney and like randy gerber or jfk jr one of those guys but um what do you mean they didn't have girls with them and they couldn't get in yeah <clears throat> so they came in and got me in the back door like yeah of course but it was just they're on a rigid orders like no girls by the way no i should entry. i should interject i had a friend of mine meet me <coughs> the other night at butterfly and I guess, you know, I forget, um, working the door at Butterfly. Cindy. Is, Cindy, is sorry. So door. Cindy uh, said, hey, you know, your friend's outside, and, she, you know, he's got, like, nine guys with him. I said, that doesn't sound like a friend of mine, but um, are you <laughs> sure? <laughs> I, I don't really have friends that show up with, like, nine guys anywhere, but okay, sure, I'll tell him maybe he can't, whatever, maybe he can't come in or something. So um, then he finally got in, and he's like, I wasn't even with those guys. They were just trying to get in with me. I didn't uh, even know them. And who I was, was like, it? Uh, just this guy, this friend of mine, but I was like, you know, exactly. That doesn't. So even now, Shippy and Jordy, I, <laughs> yeah. they got. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So even now that that policy exists, but so so okay. So you got wax. You have sway. Sway is this incredible underground kind of. Uh, I I don't even want to call it a a den of debauchery. It was a den of debauchery. It was for a den sure, of debauchery. <laughs> right. It was it was an old dive bar, and uh, I went to Morocco and filled up a couple containers and redid all the aesthetics and rounded all the ceilings and authentic Moroccan tile and 
you know, everything was made there and, and shipped over. Um, and you have any great stories from back in the day? From oh, Sway? It's dude, still open. Man. It's called like Casablanca now or yeah, something. Or? Yeah, it was Sway for 20 years. Um, dude. I mean, just, I know you can't mention all these stories, but that's part, you know, there we are some stories. Up, like, that, we ended up getting a cabaret license, which was really hard to get at the time. So th- from the time it started out as a lounge, it went into a full on dance lounge, but everyone was off their fucking yeah. maracas back right. then we were pulling the gates down and sleeping on sofas and if i got out of there there are people that would be locking themselves in or they got locked in the bathrooms and they'd end up going look for the staff's names behind the bar because people didn't have cell phones really or they're just coming out and i get calls at six in the morning to unlock people that got locked in the bathrooms <laughs> and having sex and passed out in the basement and right. sometimes we would wake up on the on the banquettes and be 80 degrees and the sun to be coming out like oh man <laughs> i wish i was there back in the day yeah, i mean that's if we couldn't like fill the garbage bags up with beer and vodka and just walk a couple blocks back to my house right. we would have a 40 person line walk out the door when we close to go back to my house and just after party every well, we, we should talk night. about the fact that you had back at your house a cat which was like a, a like a small lion or something right and not not yet not uh, at that point okay well you do you did, have, did a have a small have, lion at your yes. house well maybe a small small Cheetah. Sort of cheetah lion whatever yeah. it was um that could be was an african serval yeah i don't I'm not sure if it was legal but you had some kind of wild no, animal they're, not, they're not legal right so <laughs> so um and at what point did you living in asia come into play because you did live with the monks was that before when was that in the hierarchy it was sort of so kind of along this timeline um this was about 2001 2002 like i was a, just getting really burnt it was like Let's see, 96, 95, six, six years of hardcore being out Party. every I mean, night of the yeah. week. And I, b- it's amazing then, you're still here, Sunday, by the way. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it da- didn't matter when. Yeah. So we were out every single night of the week. Um, I was just getting burnt, man. I needed a change. So um, I did. I moved to London. Uh, I was going to open another project over there, a uh, big project in Mayfair, uh, Barclay Street. And uh, a friend of mine was a developer. And uh, it got held up forever. So, you know, I had just stopped drinking over there. And I was just like, let's just clean slate for a little while. And I started doing Kung Fu in a place in London called the, the Shaolin Temple, UK. Um, and I ended up, I was just waiting for this project to get off the ground. So I ended up training every day. And um, for a couple of years, now, two years. And then this still waiting for this project. You know, it's expensive to live in London. Sure. <coughs> um, it still is. It's, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the the head master at the Shaolin Temple in London came from the actual Shaolin Temple in China. It's a 1,500-year-old temple, uh, Kung Fu-based, Buddhist-based. Um, and he got me in as a Westerner, uh, one of his brothers. And what prompts someone like you in the nightclub is to say, I'm going to move to China and live with monks? Because I was already training with the monks in London pretty much full-time, like three times a day, every day. And... Uh, it would be a lot cheaper for me to live over there and I could just do this full time. I thought I was going to go for two months, you know, and come back. And, and what's it like when you're living over there? Because they don't really, they don't speak English. No, no. There's no other, uh, were there Americans I, there? I was, I was lucky because I learned all my Kung Fu moves in Chinese. So I could understand the training. Uh, every type of kick, every type of punch, whatever, you know, it was, so it was easy for me to learn how to train. Um, Mandarin is not hard to learn. So um, I mean, I can barely learn English. I, I don't know about Mandarin. Do I, I would never be able to write it. I would never <laughs> right. be able to do the calligraphy. But yeah. picked up on it quick, pretty quick. And um, there's another uh, dude who came over from England that I met after a while. And um, So you weren't there alone? I, I, mean, I was kinda... there alone. I got there in the middle of December. It was friggin' snowing out. All the monks had gone home because it's so cold. We're literally on the top of a mountain. Like, if you've seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, That's it's, what it was it's like. exactly like No that. cell phone or was there a cell phone? No right cell phone. There? Right. No. no email, nothing? Uh, email, hmm, maybe not for the first couple months. Um, so do people think you... I had to go somewhere to do email. Yeah, the people so think you dude, died at that point. We didn't have toilets, bro. I can't even imagine. There's no fucking I, I, toilets. Like, no showers in the middle of winter. I showered once a week during the winter. So do people think uh, that the you... The toilets uh, were a hole in the ground. That's crazy. So what do people think happened to you? Did they think that you just kind of disappeared? I or? sent people pictures, man. I told people I was going to check out for a little while. Um, and yeah, it was just like we would get up at 4.30 in the morning, right, you know, run up in the mountains, uh, do Tai Chi and Qigong on top of the mountain, 
come back down these crazy stairs or cut into the mountain like a thousand meters of stairs on our hands upside down and Amazing. like the workout was insane kind of what and i then, do every day exactly every morning now, exactly like. <laughs> <laughs> three steps up yeah. so and then we had breakfast and then we do two and a half hours of kung fu wow. kickboxing basically chinese kickboxing is called sanda uh take a nap lunch two and a half hours more kickboxing nap dinner practice everything we learned all day and completely dead tired by like nine and crashed that's and incredible that was it every day and then sundays it was just like you practice what you learn i commend you because i can never do that you know i have trouble just sort of going to the gym but um at some point you come back and you're yep. like you know the rose bar came up the idea came up i think you partnered with ian schrager for that right well it came back and originally it was to do a relaunch of sway because i was gone and it needed a little love yeah and uh I did, uh, came back and just had a really fun party with all my friends that I hadn't seen for a while. And um, funny enough, um, Sean McPherson and Eric Good were there that night. And they, while I was gone, they had just bought the Maritime Hotel. And um, they had, as you remember it, the big Hero Ballroom space. Right. Oh, so the so Hero Ballroom was before Rose yeah, Bar. Yeah, okay. yeah. So this, is, this is the timeline time. there. This is right where you and I met. Right, right, okay. Um, we met, uh, so Sean and Eric pulled me aside and said, hey, listen, man, we've got this great project. They walked me through it, showed it to me, like, this can be your baby, you'll be our partner. Because you always wanted to kind of have live music as part of what you were doing, and you were always searching for that right venue, I remember. I think they realized that, uh, they saw the potential before I did, because it was originally just the lounge area upstairs. So right. it was, again, it was just a 2,000 square foot lounge. It was the top mezzanine of this big cavernous, what used to be like a banquet space, but... We originally opened that upstairs, and you had to walk in through 17th Street. Because so it used to be like a Chinese restaurant or something there, right? Uh, it was not. It just uh, it was uh, a home for uh, underprivileged kids. Okay. It was a restaurant at some point. No, they created no? that from scratch. Oh, okay. okay. Everything, everything was done from scratch. Okay. Um, which, on the other side, we built Matsuri, which is how the, right, exactly. the Asian influence popped over next door. Yeah. And Eric and I literally designed Hero in probably a night. We sat oh. down overnight, had some wine whipped together some ideas. We tied it together a little with uh, the Matsuri design. With the concept of having live music in a venue Not instead yet. of a lounge. Not no. yet. Okay. First it was just the lounge. <clears throat> and then um, we did those shoji screens that, that separated the top from the downstairs because right. it was just too big. You couldn't look out into that. So it was a lounge for like a year um, until they made us move the, the entrance because it was too close to a school. So mm -hmm. then we went all the way around to the other side to 16th Street, which is now actually the Tao entrance. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and then it became a thing where you had to walk through this big cavernous space to get up to our little lounge upstairs. So right. that's when we decided to make Hero Ballroom part of it. And then we built out the stage and, and all the lighting and, and the soundboards and all that stuff. And then we started having some really fun so who did you have play there? You did have Guns N' Roses play there. You have I feel like Jane's Addiction might have played yep, there. Yeah, we did Jane's Addiction, Beck, tons of people. I remember we did Maroon 5 from Rhea Sharpo's birthday, um, Aretha Franklin. It was an epic place. I mean, I guess we can... I mean, the last one was the Guns N' Roses. That's That was the goodbye show. All where right. Because like, I, w I had already opened Electric Room at that time, so... And, uh, and we... I actually remember the story. It's a, a great story. So Vince Neil... We, I was like, let's get Motley Crue to perform. I mean, you. Were I remember the original invitation. Yeah, what did we, it say? I don't remember. It, it. was your anniversary, yeah. and Vince Neil was on, and I remember the drawing on it. And yeah, we, yeah. So we, me and my buddy Robbie Hopkins, one of my best friends, we were going to play drums with uh, Vince Neil's band and like perform Motley Crue songs. So I learned like "Kickstart My Heart," uh, mm -hmm. "Too Fast for Love," or whatever all those songs were. And by the way, not easy songs to play on the drums because Tommy Lee is a great drummer, and we learned songs. Vince Neil came in, and at the last minute, he was like, I don't know if he got sick, or something happened. We flew him here. He was staying at the Maritime, and then he, like, yeah. canceled. I remember it was, like, Labor Day. He's probably or fucking hung over. Something, but it, it was definitely, like, a holiday that weekend, and the, and the party was on a Tuesday. It was Fashion Week, and you and I start going through artists to perform, and you said, what about Scott Whelan and, you know, <coughs> Scott Whelan's solo band? And I said, I, you know, I love Stunt Temple Pilots, but I don't know if people are going to really respond in the fashion community to the solo Scott Whelan stuff. And then you said... Courtney Love. Right. And, <laughs> uh, and I remember calling her manager, J.D., who I'm good friends with, and he's like, well, you know, what, there's other artists, and what about this one and that one? I said, no, I think Courtney would be cool. And... and uh, the only story, the, the real story that I can remember is like we kind of 
Courtney was said something like, "I don't know who Scott is or one is." If it's even something Didn't like, she have like all the band play without her and just have you run through the songs first. Yeah. Then, so so from the story I remember, she basically was like, <coughs> if "He's some like you know designer on the drums. I'm not coming if he's not like a real drummer." And so. You know, she kind of was like, I think I'll do. And then didn't nobody heard from her for like a day. And we started flying in the band members from like London and San Francisco, just figuring, hey, you know, we're, <laughs> we're going to give this a go. And I asked JD, the manager, can I play drums with her? And he's like, you know, you just come to Soundcheck. We'll figure it out. He didn't really give me a definitive. So I had not really learned the songs that well because I still didn't know if I was performing. So I show up at Soundcheck. I play a couple songs, courtesy of you and your relationship with Courtney. And, you know, I think the band, after like a song or two, called her and said, hey, uh, this guy's you know, pretty good. Yeah, whatever <laughs> they said. And so she walks in and she said, oh, uh, I heard you're, uh, you know, better than our drummer. And I'm like, well, I don't know about that. Thank you. But let's play a song. We played a song. It was this amazing kinetic energy. I, I, I guess it worked in my favor that I didn't really learn the songs that well. Had a bit of that yeah, sloppy little, punk rock thing. Which improv was. going on there. And yeah, we, we played the show at your spot. <laughs> It was epic. It was the 10-year anniversary, and that was about a month later. I ended up uh, playing in Brazil with her in front of like 40,000 people. Um, I love seeing connections like that happen. Yeah, so that was all because of you. So that was pretty awesome. So thank you. So Mm -hmm. after Hero, you went on to have Electric Room, uh, or actually the Rose Bar was next, right? Rose Bar was next. So Rose Bar. So the only thing I'm going to say about Rose Bar, and we could do a whole episode based on the Rose Bar, is, and I tell this story all the time there, I've never seen such an incredible eclectic curated mix of people you would have kate moss sitting next to mm-hmm. lenny kravis sitting next to tommy hilfiger sitting next to bill clinton or mick jagger or you know models politicians you know nightlife i mean it was this incredible mix of uh, people that i've never seen before in my whole life and i don't think it'll ever be recreated like that ever again i agree with you um what was it about yeah, the rose I, that had i that? got a call from ian schrager who i hadn't i didn't know at the time um of course i knew of him but, um, man, I remember I walked into his wall, into his office, and he had this Vanity Fair article, which had, like, the kings and queens of New York, and it was pinned on his wall. And it was everybody, everyone you can imagine in the business. So he interviewed everyone, and eventually... Um, well, he also started Studio 54. <coughs> of course he did, people, yeah. yeah, yeah he had started that. Studio 54 and started the boutique hotel business, and um, Ian's a legend. So um, it was pretty cool. And... Um, we put the tail end of the room together. The hotel was being finished. Julian Schnabel worked on it. The art was insane. Uh, AB, AB contributed a lot of art from his collection. So, yeah, we had Basquiat's and Orhols and Hearst's and just amazing. So, you know, the point of this room was to be like a living room parlor, which nobody had really done to this level at the time. Super classy, chic. Um, and you had this great idea to do these pop-up secret concerts called the Rose Bar Sessions we did yep. together and we actually yep. had uh, G&R we had Guns N' Roses and we had Velvet Revolver and Black Keys and then you also did a few on your own too um, but I remember it was again like you're talking yeah, about having Guns shows N- like that you know with, with Guns N' Roses and 150 people max in the room but packed. the best looking audience ever and the most it incredible was phenomenal. that was, was so much fun man yeah. those things were great yeah the Black Keys shows like People were just starting to hear about the Blackies. I loved them at the time, and, and man, they blew up right after that. But yeah. those were epic shows. To have those, basically, it's like having a stadium band performing in your living room. Well, it speaks <laughs> volumes when you have bands like Guns N' Roses that are playing in front of 100 or 150 people for you, yeah. right? Because you called them. I mean, I knew them a little bit, but you were really good friends uh, with those Axel. Guys, those guys did me big-time favors, man. Yeah. I can't thank them enough. Axel, thank you, buddy. Um, so you called yeah. Axel. Even talk about how do you get, like, because we did it together, but you really got them to play, right? So how do you get a band like Guns N' Roses to perform at, in front of 100 people? It, man, it's all relationships, and they were doing some bigger shows, and... And it actually, I think Axel had mentioned it. It's like, yeah, and I really want to do smaller shows. And I don't think he was thinking about as small as Rose Bar, but... Um, he didn't mean like 20 people. <laughs> he didn't mean <laughs> he like 100 people, right. but... Um, he meant like 5,000. Put it together, man. And I had a, a friend of mine who I was doing the stuff with, Brent Hawking. Um, he had a tequila brand called Deleon. And um, man, he was really into what we were doing. And, and it was right when he was launching his brand. So he helped me cover it. costs for for, you know production and all that so like the band would do me a favor and then i had money coming in from Deleon tequila to uh which has since been sold to to puffy but i think we had the cult play too right we did Didn't the, the cult, cult right. we did the cult we did the black keys we like then you did God, you i think you did um sean lennon on your own after that i think years yeah. later i saw yeah, one there's of a bunch of them man yeah. 
Well, never to be recreated. That was the best looking audience I've ever seen in any <laughs> spot ever in any place I've ever been in my life. So kudos. For some reason, I thought the span was a lot longer than four years because I had my own like table set up and I was there like literally <laughs> three nights a week and it was incredible. So well, that that was when like you know the banking crisis happened. Right. So as soon as that happened, hotel occupancies got crushed and you know there was the hotel was not doing well at the time. So that's you know. I came on board with Ian, and then he got bought out, and it just wasn't the same after that. It's so. interesting because I've been back there since a few times in the last few years, and it's so much about the people in these spots because you go in now, and literally I know no one. And I feel like I know so many yeah. people in New York, thousands, Those right? Were all, it was all friends. I mean, yeah. we knew everybody in that room. It was friends and family in, in our living room. And the sure. toughest door policy ever. You couldn't get in there. I mean, unless you were, like, <laughs> friends with you or something. Even I, I think there was times I'd walk up and there was, like, a new door guy. I was like, wait a minute. I'm going to have, like, a table. I'm like, you're not getting in. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but it was the hardest door policy. Actually, the hardest. But it's a great room. room. A great room. But there's something to be said about that curation that you did. And so then you go on to have the electric room. Yep. And then that exists for a period of... We did. At that time, it was actually... Um, or I did that restaurant, Kenmare and Don Hills. Right, I was right. juggling the three oh, of those. I keep three of those. So many spaces, yeah. Yeah, so Don Hill was a buddy of mine, and um, uh, we took that over with Paul Sevigny, and um, we did actually our best shows ever there, man. Yeah. With more, we called them the Nurkan sessions, but I did those with, with my buddy Brent Delion, and um, man, our opening week was like back-to-back. Thank you, First, Jack White. Dead weather, Allison Mossart and, and the gang. Yeah, uh, that was like a teaser before we renovated it. Um, sick fucking show. It's the last night of their tour, and um, it was like 100 degrees. God bless them. They were like super good sports. But uh, and then we opened up Fashion Week, and what was the first night was? You definitely had Iggy Pop play there. We, I remember first that. night was Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Second night was Iggy Pop, um, which like. Both of those, like this, is just kicked off the whole week. This is like right when Boom Boom Room was open, like the second second fashion week, maybe. And, yeah. and we had everybody in this grungy dive bar that we all loved. You know, it was like three blocks deep of people for that Iggy Pop yeah. show to get in. Amazing. So, and then we did Iggy, and then we did Courtney and and yeah. Hole. Yeah. Uh, that was probably one of the best venues for you, because again, you have always wanted to do the live room yeah. thing, and that was a great venue. And it was for authentic. You. Yeah, it was great. So somebody should bring that place back. Yeah, what's well, it, gonna never gonna come back? Problem. I guess right. Yeah. Even after that, so and we had the yeah yeah yes, and we had Crystal Castles, and that was just five days in a row. Um, that was a launch. So but, any stories about Don Hill that you could tell us? Because I mean, he was a great guy. He was an older guy who loved music. But Don any stories about that <coughs> about that venue or about the times there? About anything that happened that night? Because there's so much debauchery over the years that have happened <laughs> in your spots. But I know you can't tell about 95 percent of the stories. But I feel yeah. like. There are some stories that need to be told. I don't know, man. I mean, God, they all get so blurry after all this amount of time. But, you know, Iggy Pop coming in. I think he, like, you remember my door girl, Megan? Yeah. I think, like, one night he just pissed on her shoes and like, he was in the dressing room. And she's like, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Iggy Pop just pissed on I her I mean, shoes. how does but, that work? How does that happen? You know, He's just like, I'm not going to use the restroom. I'm going to pee on your shoes. I mean, it's punk rock, I guess, right? <laughs> right. That's what you do. <laughs> Um, at 65 yeah. <laughs> he's still doing that too because he's no like shirt yeah. On. Yeah. 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 guy I mean, looks better was, than me that may have been one of the best shows we ever did yeah. that was nuts definitely um, but you know it's just a it's a bummer man because Don was a really good friend of ours and you know one day I was going to get the banks from him and I'm, I'm texting him and I didn't get any answer and, and he just passed away man yeah. and uh, yeah he lived the life it was though, a month to month lease that he had always had there from day one so um, you know people want to develop over there and uh they yeah. didn't want to. They didn't want to keep the lease going. Well, I feel like every inch of New York is being developed into some kind of That's high exactly rise. Exactly why. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you go through all these spots. Take us to today. I mean, culture has changed incredibly. I mean, obviously, there's a whole new millennial thing that uh, you and I are not super connected to. But yet, you open up a new spot yep. uh, in Thompson Hotel with John McDonald's, um, and so and it's called Butterfly, right? Correct. Butterfly yep. Soho. And um, and tell us about because I was there. I mean, basically that's my home now because that's the new <coughs> rose bar for me. But when I'm in town now, I obviously I'm always hanging at your spots, and it's about walking into a spot like that within a minute's notice. I have all my friends around me. Yeah. And it's this incredible collection of people again. So you're sort of recreating the rose bar era in a way, right? And so how did Butterfly Soho come about? Well, I mean, I feel like there was something that was missing since the first 
half a rose bar because they turned it in, they put disco balls in there and took the pool table out. So it turned into something very different than what we originally loved about it. Um, and I had felt that had been missing from New York for a long time, man. So um, I just tried to figure out what I thought was missing, especially design-wise. Like if you walk around Butterfly, you know, every little corner has a very special detail and it's different in every way and, and it's just very cool and unexpected, I think. Um, uh, we designed with, this was with a friend of ours named Jason Volanek and um, it started out as, uh, there's an Italian designer named Carlo Molino who I was, we really liked the design of his spaces and he did his dream home in Italy. This guy died in the 70s, but uh, it started out with, he had a lot of leopard skin on his walls and one, particular area he had this butterfly cabinet which was pretty cool I thought so that was the initial inspiration and we started with that and yourself Jason Pomerantz yeah so Jason owns the hotel right John McDonald is my partner who we go way back back to when I opened wax he had a place on Mercer Street a block away called Merck Bar right and he also he has, has Laura Fish Bar of John, John McDonald legend for yeah. Laura Fish Bar Merck Bar Bowery Meat Company uh, Toro Blanco. I mean, it's such Bar- a small yeah. scene in New York. I literally saw him this morning at the Mercer. So, yeah. like, yeah. that's how. So, we, we, we actually known each other forever. And, uh, God, I would run out of booze and have to send my people up to Merck Bar to get bottles at the end of the night. And who knows what happened back then. But, um, yeah, we'd known each other for a long time and kind of always wanted to do a cool little. I think we both see eye to eye on the small spaces. And, yeah. and we both felt there was something missing in New York for, like, something that's a little more mature. And, again, what you and I like. And we just want to play our music like. If Definitely. you're in our living room, you know, I'm not playing stuff for everybody else because it's a giant club and you have to play shitty music. Yeah. So, um, and when you have Corinne Rotfeld or like a Gucci after party, I mean, they all yeah. come to your spot. Yeah. That's your, that's the hot spot for yep. fashion. Yep. You've always had a knack. We've had our connection too. And you've always had a knack of curating this fashion and music and live events. And so now, um, Walk me through like today because it is a different generation. And I maybe some people thought, you know, isn't there going to recreate this? But in fact, you have recreated what you did before and it's crowded. And, you know, there's not that many great spots if you're an adult that people like to go to in New York that you, they're not like, you know, nightclubs. Right. Yeah, so yeah. it's one of these spots I hang with and, and, and that I that I go to that I think is for adults like mature that you can listen to great music and there's a great restaurant below Leo. Yep. Bistro Leo. Um, so how did you sort of curate what this is now, given that cultures change? It's all about <coughs> social media. It's all about a new generation, right? Kids, it's a different generation we're connected to, right? Yep, so yep. How, did, how did you sort of help curate what's going on there now? Um, well, look, I mean, we woke, opened up right before the summer, which I've never done before. So we made a little bit of a splash, and then we had to just kind of simmer over the summertime. So it really, like, just kicked off. It's just kicking off now. Um, September and October, here we are, you know, beginning of November, and, you know, you were here last weekend. It's great, man. Yeah. Um, New York Times just, wrote an article about it. Yeah, I, New York Times. Um, not tons of press, but people are really aware of it right yeah. now. People that so know, like know. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. I've got to beef up my staff after last weekend, but um, yeah, it seems like it's catching on. It seems like uh, this is what I thought was missing. We didn't have a great living room and a place where, you know, the music isn't too loud and it's just not shitty music. It's, it, I don't have to play for a crowd because it's not a dance club. So, right, right. so you know, it's, it's just a great loft party and, and your most fascinating friend's living room that's weird and eccentric and you've got you know, millions of dollars of Damien Hurst art on the walls. One of the the cabinet that I was talking about before, I made from scratch. Oh, that's right. Damien actually yeah. gave me the butters butterflies for right, it. So right. it was. It started out with that little cabinet, and then it kind of evolved. And you know, we we did those crazy rugs, you know, by ourselves. And then that's when you know, Sante Razio obviously did um, another part of the original posse. Three of the big. Yep, my homeboy Sante did uh, three beautiful pieces that were part of Versace's last show awesome which we actually we were at um, I remember that it was in Milan so um, so how has New York nightlife changed for you and you think changed in general or like over the last 25 30 years because you were the guy that started for me what was the cool factor of New York nightlife so it's evolved it's changed people's tastes have changed again it's a lot about kids right so like where do you see it, it's gone and and how do you see like staying relevant you this is a relevant spot and it's one of the hot spots in New York and so how how do you feel like that's come to fruition given where people's tastes and cultures have gone? You know, <clears throat> that's an interesting question, but I've always tried to stay relevant by doing a 180-degree turn 
opposite of what everyone else is doing at the time. Um, I felt there was a niche missing, missing um, with the small room that, that had that living room vibe that's, you know, it's cheers, man. All your friends are here, and, and uh, it's true. Now you start to walk in, and you just know everybody in every corner. It's, it's awesome. Like, I haven't felt that in a long time. So I, you know, I don't hang out at nightclubs. I haven't in a long time. It's just not my thing. So I can't say what's really... I think the music has a big does, plays a big part uh, in, in so the ambience in the space. How do you pick the music? You have great DJs, right? But are you personally creating the playlist? Are you there sort of saying, hey, play Zeppelin, The Cult, and, you know, this Depeche Mode? No, we're not really playing that stuff, you know. We're playing more electro rock, I would say. You know, we're not... We're not doing the Led Zeppelin. I've never played a Led Zeppelin song in Butterfly yet. Well, I haven't played a cult song yet. Except for the Tina Turner, a whole lot of love. Except for the new one that you're like, Tina Turner, a whole lot of love. I don't think it's new. We used to play that in Rose Bar, but I'm glad you just discovered (laughs) it. (laughs) I think I discovered it before, but I just heard it recently. Because, I mean, when it comes on 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 the third round in the UFC fight last week, (laughs) and I had to call you and tell you that (laughs) it's it's relevant, buddy. It is. I don't know. (laughs) I just rediscovered this song from the 70s. But So are you personally picking out the music, or do you let your DJs just do what they want? So I'm lucky enough that my my DJs have been with me forever. Two, like two of them, I gave the first gigs at Sway, so they know my head inside and out. Um, I don't have to say anything to me at this point anymore. You know, it's like play what we want to play, what all you guys would play in your living rooms. Don't even worry about playing to the crowd. And if people want to be a part of what we're doing, then come hang out. You know, and it works. Well, and I think that's, th- that's our little niche market, and I don't think anybody can even copy it. Um, Could you see like a butterfly LA, a butterfly I would love London? Love to do, yeah. So I think this is the one that we we brand for sure. It works. It works in any major city. I, I would think LA makes most sense. In hotels, um, you would see that yep, kind of as a yep. partner. You like, always kind of. I like being hotels. in hotels now. Um, it's just nice to feed your people, put them in beds, one stop shopping. Yeah. You know, nightlife. So yeah, I'd love to do a spot in LA. I'd love to do something in Vegas, London. I think would be the first three that makes sense. Well, part of the reason you and I are such great friends is you're authentic, and I think the bands feel that authenticity with you, right? You're friends with so many artists. You're friends with the guys in Guns N' Roses and the Cult and Kate Moss, whoever, right? They feel that thing with you that you're like one of them. You're a musician in a sense. You're like. The only musician who's not a musician that should be a musician is Nur, right? We've always, yeah, it's funny. We've always been musician bars. So musicians, artists, Jack fashion, White, fashion, whoever, have, right? yeah, have yeah. always gravitated to, to what we play in, in, in the bars. So that's cool, man. Well, I could say that because, again, it is 11, 12 in the morning, and you're dressed <laughs> like it could be 3 in the morning still. So it's great. I love it. Well, hey, man, what's... 2020, I mean, I feel like I see you three or four times a week when I'm in New York. Yep. But uh, anything on the slate for Nur and Butterfly and anything else coming up that you want to uh, talk about? You should follow NurCon on Instagram, right? You'll see pictures of occasionally uh, our buddy Norman Reedus, me, or whoever it is, right? Uh, and definitely Butterfly Soho. Yeah. Um, but what's what's on the slate for 2020? Uh, 2020 is just getting this this place up and running um, and firing on all cylinders. Cool. Really, yeah. Maybe, and a little, it, maybe a little traveling in the winter. Yeah, if you had one sort of <laughs> wish where you could, because you always go to these exotic locations, right? Is there one place that you haven't been that you really want to go 2022? Hmm, man. Uh, I don't know. Because I hung out with you in like Thailand, I believe, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, Thailand's still one of my favorites. I used to go to Bali a lot, but Thailand I like because, you know, it's always, I, it's, I can kickbox there. Um, it's always but, interesting with Nerf because like you're hanging out in Thailand and like you know Pete Doherty shows up at the house. <laughs> so I'm like, what the fuck? You know, like what, what's yeah, that? I mean, it's that never like a dull that moment. So I'm like, what is he doing here? <laughs> We're in Thailand, right? Puffy, yeah. Puffy, Pete Doherty shows yeah, up at our house. Whoever, you know, right? Scotty, I get you in town and <laughs> yeah. I see you riding an elephant. I mean, I've never seen you know, more scared in my life than I when get, you're on that elephant. Guy. I get paid by the footsteps, so just be careful. But um, hey, man, such a pleasure. I'm gonna see you. Well, I'm leaving tonight. Back to LA, but you are my one-stop shop when I'm in New York, one of my closest friends, uh, and the reason why I play music still to this day in Urcon. So check out Butterfly Soho. Uh, listen to Nur's musical taste, because if you guys haven't been to the spots, you too will shazam the hell out of a, a playlist happening there. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for the DJs. Okay. So the other nights, it's, it's open. What, when it's is it open, by the way? Tuesday through Saturday. Okay, cool. So uh, check out Butterfly Soho 2020. I'm sure there's a lot in store. I'm sure we'll be on some more adventures. And next time I have you on the show, we're going to tell like all the juicy <laughs> stories that we couldn't think of this time. But there's plenty of them that are probably, I don't know, R-rated, and maybe not <laughs> uh, for PGEers. <laughs> so we'll put a sticker on this episode. But thanks, brother. Thanks, thanks buddy. Thanks for stopping in. 
Hey guys, well that was awesome. Having Nur here was such a great time and uh, an old friend and super uh, super fun chat. I want to let you know today the show is being brought today by the good folks at Thursday Boot Company, a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. These shoes are selling for $149 starting when other shoes of uh, the same quality are at $400 plus. You guys have seen me wear these in many photos, my favorite boots in the whole world. Thursday's Boots. Go check it out. There's a store in Soho. They're sold online everywhere. And uh, make sure you pick up a pair of Thursday's Boots. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. So check it out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. One of my favorite sponsors. And uh, thank you. Hey, Dennis Quaid here, and I want to tell you about the Orange Tree. Now, I have recently started a podcast network called Audio Up, and much as I prepare for movie roles, I've been researching the podcast landscape and listening to hundreds of podcasts. One in particular stopped me in my tracks. The Orange Tree. It's a true crime podcast series told with such authenticity and care by Haley Butler and Tinu Thomas, two journalists who were University of Texas students when they started reporting on the story. It's about the 2005 murder of a young woman named Jennifer Cave near the University of Texas at Austin campus. What struck me most was the thorough examination of the case and the exclusive access granted to these two young reporters. What makes this true crime story so unique is their perspective. There are two young women who are the same age as Jennifer Cave and at very similar points in their lives. The Orange Tree is engaging, it's thoughtful, and really, really powerful. Take a listen to The Orange Tree on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts today. In Lauren Lake's courtroom, there is no nonsense. Step away when you have but I'm I'm gonna be there. Don't talk when I'm talking. Just results. Mr. Jackson, you are the father. <laughs> Live it, own it, be it. You see it? Listen to Lauren Lake's Paternity Court on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.